the Jewish views on President Donald Trump's meeting with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, what was achieved and what happens next. Two Sisters, actress Norma Cohen tells us about her role in the play by Gail Lauv, and Saving Sippy, how you could play your part in helping a mother from northwest London in her brave fight against leukemia. But first, with a roundup of the Jewish news this week, I'm Vivian Krieger. The US President Donald Trump welcomed the Israeli Prime Minister at the White House and said that he'd support the peace agreement that Israel and the Palestinians liked the best. The President appeared to turn United States policy on its head, saying he was looking at two states and one state. He asked Benjamin Netanyahu, though, to hold back on settlement expansion. Almost 10,000 units have been approved or legalized since Trump's election. The president also spoke about his campaign to move the U.S. embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, saying he'd love to see it happen. The Walt Disney Company has severed ties with YouTube's biggest star, the Swede Felix Jelberg, after he paid two men to hold up banners reading, Death to Jews. Jelberg, whose online name is PewDiePie, claimed the stunt was to show how crazy the modern world is, but Disney bosses took a different view. The 27-year-old Swede built a huge fan base of more than 50 million subscribers with his opinionated videos and signed a deal with Disney in 2014, which was seen as a key source of income. EasyJet cabin crew on a flight from Tel Aviv to Luton were forced to call police from 30,000 feet up after a group of strictly orthodox men refused to take their seats next to women. One steward described the flight as his worst in 11 years. Some of the men blocked the aisles and others were constantly ringing the bell for cabin crew to attend them. In a statement, EasyJet confirmed that the flight was met by Bedfordshire police officers on arrival at Luton because of disruptive behaviour by some passengers. However, no charges were brought. Britain's oldest Jewish woman died this week at the age of 109. Esther Sacon was born in 1907 and grew up in the East End of London. After she met her husband, Lewis, she moved to Stamford Hill, then Hendon, and finally to a Jewish care home in Stanmore. Mrs. Sacon was widowed at the age of 51 and has outlived her two sons, but she's succeeded by her daughter, Helena, five grandchildren and 13 great-grandchildren. And finally, a Jewish D-Day veteran has been awarded France's highest honour. Hyman Pital, who's 95, received the Légion d'honneur for his role in the D-Day landings, which liberated France from the Nazis. Mr Pital is one of only a few surviving Britons who landed on the beaches of Normandy on June the 6th, 1944. The news this week. Now sport from Andrew. Thank you, Viv. The highlights of last weekend's Maccabi League football saw Premier Division champions North London Raiders A equal their record-breaking feat of scoring 12 goals in a game for the second time this season, but on this occasion did so despite playing 85 minutes of the match with 10 men. The only disappointment in their 12-0 thumping win over Spec was that their manager, Daniel Shafron, wasn't there to see it in person. Six NFL players who were set to go on a tour of Israel have pulled out of the trip, saying they don't want to be used by the Israeli government. The first of the players to boycott the week-long tour was Seattle Seahawks defensive end Michael Bennett. And finally, 
the United States Tennis Association has apologised after a version of Germany's historic national anthem associated with the Nazi regime was performed before a Fed Cup match. The version became closely identified with Adolf Hitler's Third Reich in the period before and during the Second World War. A USTA statement said, We extend our sincerest apologies to the German Fed Cup team and all of its fans for the performance of an outdated national anthem. Remember, you can catch up on all the latest Jewish sport at jewishnews.co.uk. Andrew, thank you very much indeed. Well, welcome along to this edition of The Jewish Views. I'm Phil Dave. Let's start off, as we always do, with a look through your copy of The Jewish News for this week. Joining me to go through it is foreign editor Stephen Orezchuk and features editor Fran Wolfish. Welcome to you both. Now, Fran, on the front page this week, there's been a little bit of a debacle, shall we say. 30,000 feet in the air. What on earth has happened? Yes, it's not often we get stories like this, but when they do come along, we certainly sit up and take notice. Uh, Apparently, police were called at 30,000 feet on an EasyJet flight from Tel Aviv to Luton because of the, well, shall we say, bad behaviour of a group of strictly orthodox men. And I believe some women were involved who, well, it's mostly the men who refused to take their seats on boarding the plane because they didn't want to sit next to female passengers. And then things sort of got a little bit worse after that. They were constantly disrupting the air stewards. And then there was something which EasyJet themselves have actually described as a foolish attempt by one passenger to charge their mobile phone in the plane's control panel pretty unheard of. So when they finally landed at Luton, the EasyJet staff obviously took action and phoned police and the police were waiting for them as they came to come off the plane. For the other passengers, it must have been very disruptive. For some, I dare say, even quite terrifying, because especially if there were passengers, perhaps, who don't really have an understanding of the Haredi community and the way that they work, they could have just seen them as someone who is the extreme of a religion they don't necessarily know much about. And it must have been quite worrying for them and disruptive. It must have been. And also for the staff, for the air stewards and air stewardesses, um, we understand that it may have been that the gentleman who plugged his phone into the control panel turned off all the lighting on board and the emergency lighting came on. Under such circumstances, when you're 30,000 feet in the air, I think everyone would get concerned. The groups do have a, a habit of being boisterous and rowdy and demanding of staff on board I think it's something we need to look at I think to anyone who has been to Israel I think it's fair comment to say that there are always going to be those who go on the aircraft of course who are going to the homeland who are going to be of a certain religiosity should we say and therefore may be quite different to other passengers around them which subsequently means that those passengers probably don't have an understanding of maybe what they class as acceptable behavior and in reverse the more religious don't understand what is classed as acceptable behavior in return however there's got to be a fairly obvious line that you don't cross and one would assume that when you start tampering with the planes even if it was accidental when you start tampering with the planes equipment it's not really a good thing. However, one does have to ask who is in the right and who's in the wrong here in so much as do the air staff have the right to get upset with passengers who don't comply with their rules or does the aircraft actually have an obligation 
if they are traveling to places such as Israel, to accommodate the more religious as well. It's a subject we are going to cover in greater detail on the schmooze a little later on in the program. However, there is other news as well. Two very important world leaders have been meeting this week. President Trump and, of course, Prime Minister Netanyahu met officially for the first time this week, didn't they, Stephen? They met for the first time in the White House with President Trump fully ensconced now. He's he's ensconced in scandal and quagmire and confusion as well. Both leaders have problems at home. Trump this week lost his national security advisor after less than a month. It emerged the day before the meeting that he knew about these secret discussions with Russia. He has so many problems right now. Netanyahu also is under criminal investigation in Israel. So this photo op, all smiles, lots of awkward handshakes that Trump seems to want to do with world leaders. This all provides a perfect escape for both of them. They're on the same page on vast majority of things. I think pretty much identical. And also, thankfully, we didn't have a photo of them holding hands and going down the steps together because... (laughs) Social media has gone wild about Trump's handshakes. And we understand that Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau escaped the uh, awkwardness of the handshake. He's the first world leader to do so. The two had lots to discuss. Iran, first and foremost, uh, what to do about the nuclear deal. It seems to be working, although neither of them like it. Settlements may be on their agenda. Trump seems very unwilling to criticize. And because of that, we've seen a huge surge in expansion and the legalization of previously illegal settlements. The peace process probably will be far, quite far down the list of priorities. They seem to be leaving no daylight in their terms. It is bizarre how there is so much controversy surrounding both leaders for one reason or another. Now, whether or not you're in favour or against them, I think it is fair to say that. And it's quite curious to know how they plan to deal with what quite a lot of other people see as problems facing them, but yet they don't necessarily appear to be seeing it that way. Yeah, I I do sort of question myself, actually, when you see Trump going around to various locations around the world, is this just a midwinter break? Is it a publicity stunt? Or are they actually discussing real policies behind closed doors? Let's face it, only so much can be discussed in those few hours that they have together. I think the real work will come in the months to come and that this is more of an introduction to Trump 101, which God knows the world needs. We shall see what happens, I'm sure. Now, in and amongst other subjects of much contention is the matter of refugees coming into this country. And there's been some wide criticism over a U-turn regarding policies on refugees, hasn't there? Everyone's come out against the government's U-turn. Lord Alf Dubbs put forward an amendment that was agreed last year to take 3,000 unaccompanied children. The government have said that that will now be capped at 350 children. Doesn't seem like a lot. David Miliband, the former foreign secretary who now heads a charity in New York, has come out and slammed this. Sir Eric Reich, who is the chair of the AJR Kinder Transport Committee, who came to the country as a four-year-old, has slammed this. Jonathan Arkush, president of the Board of Deputies, has written to Home Secretary Amber Rudd to say, come on, surely we can do better than this. J-Corps, the human rights group, 
everywhere you look, people are appalled that such a small number has been cut even further. When you look abroad, poor, unsteady Middle East and African countries are taking hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of refugees. It seems very strange that we only take a couple of hundred. It is fascinating how this story could seem so familiar to the Jewish community, as obviously our ancestors would have gone through a very similar thing. And it does have to make you question how different would all of our lives have been had we, or rather our ancestors, suffered the same hurdles to overcome, doesn't it? Yeah, I think being a refugee um, is something that's very deep and ingrained within the Jewish experience. And there are probably very few of us that can say that we don't descend from immigrants who were fleeing persecution myself you know I'm you know, my great-grandparents came over well before the war but they were still fleeing persecution from Russia and Poland so the fact that Britain has always had this kind of welcoming policy to refugees to people fleeing persecution and yet we're sort of closing the doors to these child refugees it does seem a little bit sad and unfair be interesting to see what happens. Just finally, France has been handing out something in the way of highest honours, haven't they, Fran? Who has been awarded what and why? Well, yes, if you remember two years ago, President Francois Hollande announced that every man who'd landed on the northern beaches of France on D-Day would be awarded the, I hope I'm saying this right, Légion d'Honneur, which is the country's highest accolade. And one of those recipients was Hyman Pittle recently, who was one of the few surviving Britons who landed in France on June the 6th, 1944, or D-Day, as we all know it. So, muzzle tov to him. And I believe there was a second one as well, Shira Morris Masters, 97, who, as a lance corporal, arrived in France in 1944 and worked his way through to Nuremberg as a supply line driver. And he escaped via... Saint Nozier. So, congratulations to both them. Well deserved, I would say. You know, we should be honouring our D Day veterans, and it's lovely that even all these years later they can still get their honour. Certainly is. Well, I hope that it's a case of better late than never. Unfortunately, that's where we'll have to leave it for this week. But thank you both very much indeed. Don't forget you can pick up your copy of The Jewish News every Thursday across London or you can read the e-version online at jewishnews.co.uk. As you've already heard, the US President Donald Trump welcomed the Israeli Prime Minister at the White House and said that he'd support the peace agreement that Israel and the Palestinians like the best. Peace in the Middle East was amongst a number of subjects that the two leaders had to discuss, and from a global jury's perspective, it is probably one of the most anticipated presidential meetings since Mr Trump took office. To unpick what happened and to see how it could affect Israel moving forward, we welcome Ron Campius, the JTA's Washington Bureau Chief, who's on the line now. Ron, can we start with a summation of what actually was discussed between President Trump and Prime Minister Netanyahu? Well, uh, afterwards, Prime Minister Netanyahu gave the Israeli reporters a briefing and he said they went over options on Iran. They both see Iran as an emerging threat, and they talked, he wouldn't give specifics, but they talked about Iran, particularly as it relates to the Iran nuclear deal, which they don't like. 
They didn't say how they would treat the nuclear deal, whether they believed they, it should be trashed, but they did talk about it. They talked about Syria, especially. That's a very sensitive area for U.S.-Israel relations under the Trump administration because Trump is growing much more, much closer to Russia, which is allied with the Assad regime, and Israel perceives the Assad regime as a threat, and particularly the Assad regime's alliance with Iran and Hezbollah. So they talked about that. They did talk about settlements. They, although Trump in the press conference sounded as if he was pretty determined for Israel to at least stop settlement expansion for now, Netanyahu said that during the meeting it was only a matter for discussion, that they, that they would come to understandings, but they haven't come to understandings yet. He wants to revive the 2004 understandings between George W. Bush and Ariel Sharon that allowed Israel for, quote-unquote, natural growth within the settlements. They talked about defeating ISIS, a big issue for both of them. And that's about it. Well, you say that's about it, but I mean, you've probably just picked out probably some of the biggest issues facing global jury at the moment. So absolutely, that covered one heck of a lot. And obviously, as anticipated, it uh, is what was expected was going to be said between the two. Let's unpick some of those particular issues that you've mentioned. First of all, let's start with Iran, as you did. What do you think in terms of the situation in Iran? Obviously, that was one of President Obama's, shall we say, legacies, is that his deal that he struck up with Iran wasn't seen as the best outcome, shall we say, the least for Israel. Now that President Trump, who does at surface value, seem to be quite pro-Israel, do you believe that there is a chance that he might now start unpicking that and start coming down heavier on Iran? There's a chance, but we, we still don't know how. I mean, what we have with Trump... Still calls it like one of the worst deals he's ever seen. He said at times during the campaign he would, he seemed to say that he would end the deal or pull out of the deal, and then sometimes he didn't seem to say that. His top advisors in this area, James Mattis, the defense secretary and the secretary of state, Rex Tillerson, also say they don't like the deal, but they would say they, they would like to see it more enforced. But we we don't know what that means just yet. There is room for increased enforcement. You could send signals to Iran that you're serious about watching what it does in the region. For instance, you could intercept an Iranian ship that is taking arms to an an American enemy or to an enemy of an American ally. Let's say, make a big show of intercepting an Iranian ship arming Hezbollah or arming the Houthi rebels in Yemen who are fighting against Saudi Arabia, which is a close American ally. All these things, there's all these, there's a whole range of things you can do. I mean, Obama, the, the one thing they've done so far was, was actually something that Obama did. They sanctioned Iranian individuals and entities after Iran tested ballistic missiles. That's exactly what, that's not only exactly what Obama did a year ago after the same kind of text took place. These, these uh, sanctions that they put into place were ready to go into place because the Ob- Obama administration officials had set them up just in case Iran had done something like this. So they haven't really done anything different from what Obama has done, but they have certainly racked up the rhetoric. The National Security Advisor who was just ousted, Mr. Flynn, he said that Iran was on notice. That wasn't the kind of rhetoric that the Obama administration would ever have used. So rhetorically, they've certainly upped the game. We just don't know what that means specifically. But sometimes, you know, as you know, in diplomacy, rhetoric is its own weapon. So as far as that goes, it's already intensified. Isn't it the truth of the matter that for as long as the Western world, and let's be honest, there is quite a lot of the Western world that does question President Trump's methods and his state of authority, even though democratically elected and all of that, we get that. Is the truth, though, that if the Western world questions him and his ways about dealing with certain situations, 
how can we possibly expect a country that is not necessarily known, such as Iran, for listening to world opinion normally? How can we possibly expect them to be negotiated with? Is it actually going to run the risk of having a president like Mr. Trump, who is obviously quite full on and quite a tour de force, to get him to negotiate something that ultimately with a country that doesn't necessarily want to be negotiated with? Yeah, I think that there's, you know, this is what we're going to have to see going forward. I mean, he talks about like having a much tougher profile for the United States in the world. He certainly his is just his, his transition to his office, the, you know, the the fact of his being in office after inauguration has triggered changes in tone, I think, from some European allies. You saw yourself in Britain that even before he was in office, the British were very critical of the United States for the John Kerry speech, which in itself was critical of Israel for its actions with the Palestinians. Mm. On the other hand, he's mercurial. He seems to be saying one thing one day, another thing another day. He says one thing and a you know, there's like nobody quite understands what he's what exactly he's trying to do with this executive order barring travelers from seven Muslim majority countries and barring refugees, because one day it means one thing, another day it means another thing. And that you're right, that that uncertainty among allies will extend also to enemies and to rivals like Iran. What does he mean? What he say is he going to put his money where his mouth is? I think that's going to be, uh, you know, unless he emerges from the chaos of his first month of his administration and, and achieves some clarity. That's definitely going to be an issue going forward for him. Ron, just finally, because regressively, I'm sure that we could talk about this for the best part of the hour that this show lasts. But unfortunately, we don't have that amount of time. Do you, in your personal opinion, what you have seen so far and in your professional opinion as someone from the JTA, do you believe that President Trump is a good thing for Israel? Could he help the security of the country moving forward and the safety of it, more importantly? You know, it's an open-ended question. I mean, they, you know, the people keep on going back to, or Dennis Ross, the U.S. negotiator, mentions what he says was a conversation between David Ben-Gurion and John F. Kennedy, and there have been uh, other, I've heard of this as an apocrypha with other Israeli prime ministers and presidents, where Kennedy, who was elected partly with the benefit of Jewish support, very popular among Jews, meets David Ben-Gurion for the first time, and he says, Mr. Prime Minister, what can we do for Israel? And Ben-Gurion says to Kennedy, what you can do for Israel is be a strong U.S. president, because that's the most important consideration we have. The U.S. is our closest ally, and you have to be strong. So don't worry don't, don't worry about the specifics of this particular move or that particular move. You need to be a, the U.S. needs to be a strong presence. And certainly, we don't know what's going on with Trump. We don't know whether his actions are going to increase. I mean, there's been, certainly the Israelis have been very concerned uh, they had a very strong and good relationship with Obama as far as the military and security relationship is concerned, but they were concerned about the, what they saw as a diminishment of the profile of American power in the region, particularly regarding Syria. Does uh, Trump actually ameliorate that or does he make it worse? We don't know yet. Fascinating political times. Ron Campius, chief of the Jewish Telegraph Agency's Washington Bureau. Thank you so much for speaking to me. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. Still to come on this edition, Clive Roslin will be here for our Jewish schmooze. Today, Clive and I will be joined by journalist and author Emma Klein and children's author Joe Craig. We'll be discussing religious attitudes in everyday situations. This off the back of what happened on a recent EasyJet flight. Plus, community editor Diana Toman will be speaking to Sammy Howard, the daughter of Sippy Howard, who will be telling us what you can do to help her mother's brave battle with acute myeloid leukaemia. 
But first, Two Sisters is a production, funnily enough, about two sisters. It's set on a kibbutz at the turn of the century. It's been written by the award-winning playwright Gail Lauve. It runs at various venues until the 23rd of March and stars Anne Kavner and our next guest, Norma Cohen, who's been speaking to entertainment and culture editor Kate Fulton. Kate started by asking Norma to tell us a bit about the play. It's a new production of a play that playwright Gail Love, which is a bit hard to say, but she's a brilliant playwright, has done, has written lots about Jewish family life in a way, apart from other things. It's a new production. It was on briefly at New End Theatre about four years ago, but this is a brand new production that's now touring and it's open to amazingly packed houses. So far, Brighton, Guildford and Uppingham, which was a public school, which was very interesting. And we're moving on to Epsom, ending at Highgate upstairs at the Gatehouse. For those people who don't know, just give me a very brief synopsis of the play. Two sisters, Rika, age 76, her elder sister, Edith, aged 80. Edith, an early kibbutznik, committed Zionist, went out late 40s and is an idealist and has loved her life in Israel and feels very strongly that it meant something and is bemoaning the lack of socialist ideals that maybe have transpired now. Rika is very tremulous, always feels life's done her hard. She's in the in the thrall of her sister and she comes on an annual visit to Israel. And basically the play is a non-stop bickering Jewish tragic comedy really in which there's a big secret about Rika's early life that she's always grudgingly held Edith responsible for. It's a shocking event and this explodes during the centre of the play. So the sisters are close, they're explosive, they're aggressive, they're funny. So it's a two-person show. It's a two-person show, quite a tour de force. Is it mainly you're playing to Jewish audiences? Well, the interesting thing is It's a Jewish play. There's lots of Jewish resonances and Jewish rhythms and Jewish references, but I reckon the play has affected anybody who's been part of a family. It's about family life. Somebody said, oh, it reminds me of me and my brother, yet we're two elderly sisters. So it hits anybody who's part of a family, which is everybody. And people sort of laugh. There's a kind of ripple of laughter that goes through, which is a big surprise. Cause Often does in serious plays, if it hits a note, exactly. it almost makes you laugh. It, it's a laughter of recognition of a kind of truth, apart from the sort of repartee, obvious stuff. But that's been a real surprise, because when you're rehearsing, you're in the dark. You have no idea what's going to hit. You're, you're one of the sisters, Oh, yeah. In yeah, this yeah, play. Yeah, yeah. And Whit, is, you're the... Uh... Um, luckily, I'm a Liverpudlian sister. And oh, Allerton in Liverpool is mentioned, which is great because I can give full reign to my own Liverpudlian uh, wry sharpness. <laughs> but the background is, is a kibbutz. It's, it's set on the kibbutz. It's set on the last nights of, of Rika's stay on the kibbutz with her sister, Edith. So lots of these plays, you can actually, when there's only a two-person, you can sort of pick up and almost take portable. with you. Portable Yes, plays. absolutely. There is a, a lovely set. It's a design set, 
Which, not so portable then? Well, luckily I'm not doing the carrying. So there is a stage manager who drives around with a van and an instant pop-up set. It's very pop-up in that way. But it, it's, yes, and I think the idea is that it could well appeal to audiences up north as well. So for synagogues and venues who oh, are listening in, yeah. you never know. I, I think it's a good night out. It's lively, it's funny, and it has a, a bittersweet undercurrent. And I think it rings true. So, Have you been an actress all your life? Well, I trained as a dancer, actually, Laban Movement, and um, that was a three-year training. You're still very dainty and petite, but you can't see because I'm sitting exercise, in front of you. Exercise, exercise, Pilates, Pilates, Pilates. And then taught movement and was a choreographer and mime. And then actually from one of the... I taught at Woodbury Down, the first comprehensive, I think it was. And there was an alliance there and one of the other teachers and I gravitated towards a theatre company called Sidewalk. And those were very exciting times. We created our own stuff, got Arts Council funding, toured up north in a bread van, went to Holland, did stuff even at the, I think it was the Royal Court upstairs. It was really exciting working with highly creative people, pitching ideas together. We did everything. So you'd be thinking about the publicity when you were on stage acting a character. It was a bit, that was a bit much, but it was a wonderful stamping ground. We worked at a place called the Oval House Arts Centre where loads of really important fringe theatre companies had breathing space to grow and create work. And I'll ever be grateful to that. Pierce Brosnan also started there. Lots of really famous people started at this wonderful... It was a boys' youth club, and it turned into this fantastic centre for the arts. And how did you meet Gail for this production? Well, amazingly, Gail approached Sarah Berger, who runs something called the So-and-So Arts Club, providing fantastic opportunities for older actors because, as you know, life gets increasingly more difficult for women, particularly older women, and asked her if she knew of any good Jewish actors. And marvellously, Sarah recommended me. There you go. Gosh, shidduch, a real shidduch <laughs> there. Absolutely. <laughs> and you started working with her. Yes, yeah, so we've had a four-week rehearsal process. It's quite a tour de force and quite a challenge working on it. It's a 52-page two-hander. It's a lot of lines. 71. <laughs> I'll come out and say that. To know you're going to absorb that, absorb it, make sense of it, turn it into a character and come out on the stage in a relaxed way and play with the audience and your co-actor. Did you know That's your co-actor before? No, no. You don't look like sisters, presumably. No, I, don't I know. know. Oh, Anne is a brilliant. She She's a very seasoned actor. She's taught, she's worked at the National. Not Jewish. Not Jewish, but she's done lots of Jewish plays and she just somehow absorbs all the mannerisms. I mean, she's very true is the best way to put it. And she worked on the mousetrap for years, so she knows what it means to tour. And she's very solid and strong and acute, highly intelligent. So that chemistry has been really enjoyable, actually. It's still a challenge, I have to say, every single day. It's not something you can just throw away lightly. You've got to be your top metal, acute memory, you know, acute energy and all that. <laughs> have you uh, ever been to a kibbutz to, to I inspiration? Haven't. My cousins were born on a kibbutz and one 
still lives in Israel, but I haven't. But actually, the back of the programme talks about the history of the kibbutz, and that part looks absolutely fascinating. So maybe this talk, this play could even go to Israel. It would be the perfect place, in a way, because it's set... Well, it's set in 91, but still the same difference in a way. So I would have thought it would ring lots of bells. You know, it would be interesting. It was very interesting to hear about the reality of early kibbutz life as well, which the play talks about en passant. And anyone can get tickets and Um, kids? uh, Well, was it mainly sort of... Well, there is one, this shocking incident. I wouldn't, for instance, invite my... 10-year-old grandson, I don't think, sadly, because the rest of it's very upbeat and lively. But There's an adult play in that way. Yeah, I think so. Uh, Young people, I think, would warm to it. The incident happened when this girl, Rika as a girl, was 14, so I would have thought teenagers would. Mm. It it played to teenagers, actually, at Uppingham Boys' School, amazingly. The lovely Norma Cohen talking to entertainment and culture editor Kate Fulton there about starring in Two Sisters. It runs until the 23rd of March. And for more information on tour dates and venues, then you can always go to our new website, jewishviews.co.uk. In just a moment will be this week's Schmooze. A reminder, we live stream the Schmooze on our Facebook page every Thursday evening from 7pm Greenwich Mean Time. That all-important address is coming up, but it means that you can comment along as the discussion unfolds. And of course, we'll try and read out those comments as and when we get them. It's just another way that you can share your Jewish views with us. Speaking of which, if you would like to get involved, we would love to hear your Jewish views. You can email studio at jewishviews.co.uk or you can contact us via social media. Find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com forward slash Jewish views or on Twitter. We are at Jewish views UK. And of course, all our details can be found on the website jewishviews.co.uk. Now, a family from northwest London needs your help. You may recall a short time ago that the family of Sharon Berger launched an appeal to find a stem cell match following her diagnosis of acute myeloid leukaemia. Well, this time, the family of Sippy Howard are appealing for the same. Sippy was diagnosed at the age of 65 and, I might add, on her birthday with the very same disease, which is posing a serious threat to her life unless a match is found. Her daughter, Sammy, has been speaking to community editor Diana Toman to give more details on what you could be doing to help. Dana started by asking Sammy to tell us how her mother is coping following her diagnosis. Yeah, she's actually incredibly high-spirited considering what we've been told by the doctors and how the um, side effects of the chemo have been affecting her. She has been having chemo, has she? Yeah. And this all started, This oh dear, this all started last December, I gather, on her birthday. Yeah, that wasn't ideal that we got the news on her birthday no indeed how has it affected the rest of the family like your sisters for instance how are you all managing with it now we're obviously all devastated and completely shocked it's definitely not something that we were expecting my elder sister in particular is five months pregnant so the extra stress definitely isn't good for her but we're all pulling together and we've got each other to lean on and my dad who's a rock I'm sure. Can you describe what your mother's life was like before this hit her, if I can put it like that? She was a very busy lady, I gather. 
she's a housewife, but she also is a hairdresser. But she pretty much spent most of her time at home with the neighbour, just doing normal things, really. Going out and seeing her friends, going to the gym once in a while. Just normal life. <laughs> right. Now, you're, you're very actively promoting this campaign. What puzzles me slightly is, is it only aimed at Sephardi Jews or can any Jews of any branch of the religion actually donate? No, not at all. It's, it's aimed at everyone. In particular, the Jewish community doesn't have a very high percentage of people on the bone marrow register. So the more Jewish people we can get on there, the better for everyone, not just my mum. However, the doctors have said that the likelihood of her finding a match amongst the Sephardi community is higher simply because genetically we're more related, I guess. But no, it's definitely aimed at everyone. Are we talking about the Anthony Nolan Trust? No, it's a charity called DKMS, so very similar to Anthony Nolan. Right. Um, just a different charity, really. I see, but covering the same sort of donors and looking for matches, presumably. Yeah. Right. Yeah. What sort of liaison, if any, have you had with the family of Sharon Berger, who I gather is almost a neighbour of yours in Kenton? And, and yeah. they, they, the, family, the family promoted a very similar campaign, didn't they, with the same disease as your mother? Yeah, actually, a few weeks ago when we just started trying to deal with this idea of building a campaign, my sister and I actually met with her son, Johnny Berger, um, who was incredibly helpful, and he gave us tips about what we should be doing and what we should be expecting and his experience of, of the whole thing. Right, that must have been very... That must be very helpful, actually, in more ways than one, emotionally as well, I imagine. Yeah, it was fairly emotional, to be honest. It was, but also it was quite comforting knowing that we weren't going into something that was impossible and someone else has done it before. And, and been successful, or moderately yeah. successful anyway. Yeah. Tell me, what, what does a donor actually physically have to do if they register with, with uh, DKMS? What happens then? Well, the process of registering is, is really simple. You have um, swabbing kits. So you just take two swabs and swab it around each side of your, your mouth and then you fill out a form. And then that goes to the charity who then puts them on the bone marrow register. And that's to find out what your DNA is, presumably, is it? Yeah, I believe it's the tissue type. The tissue type, right. Tell me about the other events, if any, that you've managed to organise since December. We've held several events at synagogues this week, which was the first week of events that we've been running, which have been fairly successful. We've got a fair amount of people attend. We've also got upcoming events of youth activities that the organisers have kindly said we could attend and try set up a store there and get as many Jewish people registering as possible. Right. You actually want people to come up and give you their names, presumably. Yeah. We really Thank do you so much. wish you all the best and particularly, of course, for your mother, Sippy. Thank you very much. Really is remarkable, isn't it? What a family is forced into doing when difficult times come about. That was Sammy Howard talking to community editor Diana Toman there about her mother, Sippy Howard 
who was recently diagnosed with acute myeloid leukemia. For more information on how you can get involved and how you could help Sippy in her fight, then please do go to our website, which is jewishviews.co.uk, and you'll find a link to the appropriate information there. You're listening to The Jewish Views, and this is The Jewish Schmooze, the part of the show where studio guests join me, Clive Roslin, to discuss matters that you've been hearing throughout the programme so far. Joining Phil Dave and me today is journalist and author Emma Klein and children's author Joe Craig. And the subject today is based on the front page of this week's Jewish News, and indeed what we heard earlier on from Viv. Cabin crew on a flight from Tel Aviv to Luton were forced to call police from 30,000 feet up after a group of strictly orthodox men refused to take their seats next to women. Now, obviously, none of us were there in person, so it's hard to comment on a specific case, but it does beg the question, who is at fault in that kind of scenario? Do we berate the passengers for causing that level of disturbance, or do we question the airlines for not providing the right provisions for religious travellers? Joe, let's start with you. Who's at fault in this sort of situation, do you think? I think that my first thought is that human lack of courtesy and, well, it's rudeness, is not the sole jurisdiction of orthodox men. But they do seem to take more of a chunk of it than most other people more often. Perhaps that's because they come up against difficult circumstances. I think, in the bigger scheme of things, maybe it would be preferable if an airline provided a service that you could arrange in advance, which took care of all your religious foibles, so you can book a, a male-only flight or a female-only <laughs> flight, and it would cost you an arm and a leg, an arm and a leg that you can't have uncovered, obviously. but <laughs> Or indeed fit in the seat. <laughs> or indeed fit in the seat, yeah, you need extra arm and a leg room. But that not being the case, to turn up for a regular EasyJet flight, they must have known what sort of flight it was and what they'd booked. It's an EasyJet flight, they have to know jet? what to expect. It is easy joke, yeah. To turn up for that kind of flight and then either expect special treatment or expect to be able to behave in a way that not only inconveniences, but on a flight, frankly, endangers the people around you. Well, it certainly did endanger it because they refused to sit down. And what's more, at the end, they had EasyJet had to invite the police. Not had to invite, <laughs> but they, they had to bring the police yeah, on. Yeah, Because and it's disgraceful. They, these, these men have behaved so badly. If you have these requirements on a flight you know this in advance it's not a surprise to you that there are going to be women on a flight i mean maybe it is you're surprised that women exist in the 21st century and want to travel to different countries well if you actually read the article on the front page of the jewish news you'll discover that not only did they refuse to sit next to women but they were extremely impolite nobody said please would you mind moving or please can i sit somewhere else they would they were just completely i suppose Haughty is the word for it. What do you think, Emma? Well, I think it's a disgrace, frankly. I mean, I agree with what you've said and what Joe has said. If they are so religious, a certain concern for others should be part of their religion. But obviously, it's not. On the other hand, perhaps, I don't think something like EasyJet should have a male and female-only area. But if these people are so manic and going, I call them manic from going on an easy jet flight or even an LL, they should in advance request if they could be only seated next to a male. 
if they don't do that and they just turn up, I think they're barbaric. I'm sorry. Look, the problem is with all of this is that we can't understand it because sitting around this table at the moment, we are not necessarily what you might call amongst the most religious Jews. However, I do think that we can all appreciate that there is a certain way to behave in everyday society, regardless of religiosity. And it's very hard to excuse poor behaviour and disruptive behaviour on the basis of a religious belief. But at the same time, I do find myself being slightly empathetic towards the passengers because I think that if a company, whether it's EasyJet, LL, whoever it is, provide a service knowing full well, and I mentioned this earlier on in the paper review, if they provide a service to people of a certain belief system, then surely they have to cater for that belief system. To me, in my mind, it is no different to providing or not providing, say, vegetarian meals for vegetarians. But yes, sorry to interrupt you, Phil, but it's quite possible that when they arrive, to say to the people when they're booking in or getting ready to go on the flight, by the way, I'm a very religious Jew and I can't sit next to a woman. Can you please put me in the seat where I'm sitting next to another man? That would be a courteous way of going about it, yes. When you talk about a particular group of people that are likely to be on the flight, in this case, the sect of people that they're having to cater for is not the sect of Orthodox Judaism or Judaism as a whole, it's the sect of rude people. (laughs) No, it's the sect of a group of people who have a certain religious belief that wasn't met. But it's how you handle that. But how is EasyJet to know in advance if they don't say something when they're booking? Uh, Which is important why it's not, the emphasis is not on EasyJet here. I mean, I know this is what we're pegging it to, but the point is that it is not EasyJet's responsibility. Absolutely, it is the passengers to make sure that they mention it beforehand. Absolutely. However, however, what I'm guessing at is that if a commercial airline, a mainstream commercial airline, is going to provide a service to a group such as Haredim, who do have certain religious beliefs, do you not think that they should have the provisions in place in exactly the same way they do when it comes to providing, say, halal food, vegetarian food and all of that? Are you saying there's, there's a moral imperative for them to do that? There's perhaps a commercial imperative if that's a market that they want to cater for. Yeah. I'd agree. I think there's can an element say, of both. Can I just say that, in fact, I've been reading the article in Jewish News. <laughs> well, I'm sorry, but, am I that boring? <laughs> no, no. But, but it, it's the, more than half the passengers on that flight were these Haredim more because they were a wedding. Really? Yeah, there was oh. a wedding group that a whole lot of people were going to it. And one passenger is quoted as saying they were blocking the aisles, making it really difficult for other passengers to get past and take their seat. I mean, there's, there's no excuse, Phil. It's just good manners. I've seen religious groups, very orthodox religious groups, travel in international airports with the utmost respect and courtesy and setting an example to everybody around them. And more than that, I was in the airport in Amman in Jordan and there was a group of religious Jews with their families and they played music to entertain everybody and there was such an atmosphere of love and just mutual compassion that transcended religion and everyone around them was was welcoming and they were from a a culture that traditionally has been opposed to to, two cultures that have traditionally been against each other and it was a wonderful thing. This is the other end of the scale where people can't accommodate those things. Frankly, I'm inclined to think that their demands on an airline are hypocritical. They're inconsistent with the rest of their views. If you have certain views about women, for example, that come from 
I was going to say the 13th century, but it's before <laughs> that. It's the second century BC. Then what are you doing on an aeroplane? Well, I mean, in terms of what are they doing on an aeroplane, it is something that is widely available in terms of travel. There are, is. Are no you telling me that flight in a metal box is specifically approved of in the Bible, in the Old Testament, in the Talmud, <laughs> but sitting next to a woman isn't and hasn't been updated in over 2,000 years. Of course, you see, it's actually all so simple. All you have to do is when booking or when going up to the desk and say, by the way, I am a religious Jew. That's Could right. you please sit me next to another man? OK, but have Absolutely. you never forgotten something? Well, it's not, no, it's not forgetting. This is something that they <laughs> emphasise. It's not like something they should, you know, remember. <laughs> they should put it forward. I mean, to expect in once you're in the plane, everyone to sort of be subsidiary to you is quite ludicrous. No, but it's, I don't think it is a case of unrealistic expectations. It, it is. is a commercial airline that is offering a service to the Holy Land where a lot of religious Jews go to. And those religious Jews have certain beliefs that they always follow to the T. As a result of it, would you not think that a commercial airline would provide services that comply with their passengers? Only if they're asked to do so yes, in advance. Exactly. I have a question for you, Phil. I travel fairly frequently internationally. I have a specific. Do you set have a problem sitting next to women? I have a specific problem, <laughs> and it comes up on aeroplanes every now and again. But in any all kinds of travel, in any kind of enclosed space, do you have any idea, guessing in advance, what it would be? Are you claustrophobic? No, I mean that would be a reasonable guess. <laughs> I am phobic of bananas. <laughs> And if anybody has a banana really? in an enclosed space, the sight of it, the smell of it, the colour of it... I must say, I've, I've, flown, I've flown a lot of places and a lot of times in a, in a number of years. I don't think I've ever seen a banana on an aircraft. <laughs> sometimes they're served as a fruit treat around really? the cabin. Really? And sometimes someone's just brought one in a packed lunch. And, and if and somebody there's put no a escape. banana to you on a plane, you'd get hysterical, would you? I would, I would... Well, this is the difference. I would try to control myself, and I tried to behave in a courteous way and remove myself or to explain and to try to make the situation better, I wouldn't get in the way, kick up a fuss and disturb everyone else on but, the flight. But with all due respect, that is something that is fairly, I wouldn't say necessarily unique because I know other people who have various fruit phobias, <laughs> but that is something that makes you you. I think You are talking about a group of people who are following a religious practice that is not completely unknown. Fair enough, it might be unknown to the secular world. However, I think all the same, it is not unheard of for religious Jews to not mix sexes. But it's as reasonable and rational. The two are, in my eyes, as reasonable but and the rational as each other. Though, they the, are psychological quirks. No, but the difference, is, the difference is, though, that you couldn't possibly expect an airline to know you have a fear of bananas, but you would be forgiven for thinking that an airline would appreciate that certain religious individuals keep men and women separately. That's what I'm saying. I don't think that that is a comparison, personally. And, and there's another quote on, yeah. on, the, on the Jewish news, which says that one steward said he'd been doing the route for 11 years and it was the worst flight he had ever experienced. Absolutely. And the police were called in and then nobody was allowed to get off the plane when it did eventually land. I but think you misunderstand me. I'm not excusing the behaviour of the passengers. There's no part of me in that whatever I've said in this discussion that I'm excusing their attitude. But what I am saying is that there needs to be some understanding and some element of empathy towards a group of individuals who obviously believe very passionately about their belief system and it should be respected. Well I'm sorry I keep saying this but if that is the case as you've just said it's so important to them why did they not 
say it at the time Absolutely. of booking or the time of, of coming into the plane. I wonder how they booked. Are they allowed to use the internet? That's a very They're good point. They're picking and choosing things from the modern world yeah. that they like. Uh, I don't think they do use the EasyJet, do they? I don't know. I'm not sure about that. I mean, so also, why didn't they fly El Al where perhaps people could explain more? Well, El Al costs a great deal more money than EasyJet. I appreciate it does. I know that. Sometimes, so your, prin- sometimes your principles cost money, if those are your <laughs> principles. Well, absolutely. So, I mean, th- there's another aspect of this, too, because this must lead to anybody hearing about it, people sitting on the plane... Becoming extremely anti-Semitic, anti-Jewish. Absolutely, I agree. Yeah, yeah, you, absolutely. Yeah. You, you but then, isn't that ignorance on their part? If their if their reason to become anti-Semitic is based on someone trying to follow their belief system, well, surely that just demonstrates further why they are ignorant in the first place. Well, ju- jumping to straight to an extreme version of anti-Semitism, I agree. But certainly, it doesn't reflect well. your your ethnic group well or your religious beliefs well Absolutely. i think you're you're not displaying the other huge parts of the religion which emphasize kindness Absolutely. and understanding and communal spirit we've got a comment here on facebook and i'm going to read out from lyndon it says lyndon here in south wales so permit this poor old catholic man to share my opinions with you three years ago Along with a Catholic group, we travelled to Israel on El Al and have to say around 95% of the passengers were of the Jewish faith and most of the men on board were quite rude, wandering around the plane, (laughs) blocking gangways and standing in the way of others and not sitting by ladies. Wonder if all these men were born from women then, (laughs) as they hate sitting next to them. Keep up the good work. Lyndon, thank you very much for your well comments. Put. And and he was that's interesting because he was not talking about Haredim particularly, was he? Well he didn't necessarily mention Haredim, no, but he did say that obviously they were religious Jews yeah. who were causing a bit of disruption and re- refusing to sit next to. So it goes to show that even a service like El Al, which sure. specifically caters yeah. for Israeli travellers, you would think you'd be forgiven for thinking that absolutely they'd have the provisions in place. I think, though, that the the bottom line is that there is right and wrong on both sides here. Is that fair to say that? That there is maybe scope for the airlines to perhaps look at what they can do to improve providing a service for more religious passengers. And at the same time, more religious passengers perhaps need to keep in mind that they really should recognise that secular passengers as well don't necessarily need to be disrupted. Just to Phil, what, what if there were a group that objected to sitting next to Jews? <laughs> That's a good That's point. a very good question. Very good and one of which I feel we've just run out of time to answer. <laughs> but, can, just, but can we just say one more thing? I mean, should there be, therefore, for flights to Israel, first class, business class and Haredi class? <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe that's a very good point at which to end. My thanks to our guests, journalist and author Emma Klein and children's author Joe Craig. Please do feel free to share your Jewish views with us. You can email studio at jewishviews.co.uk or you can contact us via social media. Find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com slash jewishviews or on Twitter we are at jewishviewsuk. And of course all our details can be found at our brand new website that's jewishviews.co.uk. Well, it's time now for our rabbinic thought for the week, and this time it comes from Rabbi Michael Evan David from Edgware, Masorti Synagogue. Our sages said that I am Hashem, your God, 
was written on the tablet that Moses got in Sinai, as well as on the tablet of our heart engraved there forever. Beautiful. But what's the big deal about these Ten Commandments anyway? Everybody know that you shouldn't murder or steal, even before God gave the Ten Commandments? Must we be told that killing is bad? The Hasidic master of Ishvitz explained that when Hashem said, you shall not murder, actually he revealed to us the deep meaning of human life, its great value, and that's what he engraved in our heart. When you understand this value, you won't want to murder, you won't be able, you don't need to be told. Same with honor your father and your mother. He engraved in our hearts the huge value of bringing a soul into the world, of the miracle of life. If you understand this, then you won't be able to disrespect your parents, the ones that performed this miracle for you. Remember the Shabbat. God revealed to us that somebody can keep the Shabbat with all its laws and details, but if the joy of Shabbat is not engraved in his heart, till the point that he feels it's just impossible to live without Shabbat, then you cannot say that person keeps Shabbat. Our ancestors received these values. Their heart was engraved by Hashem in the revelation at Sinai, and they passed it over as tradition to their children. Will we also pass this on? Do our children know how to value human life? of every person, and really understand you should not kill? Did we teach them the depth of the love and trust that must exist in a marriage so they know why you should not commit adultery? Do they understand the depth of the Shabbat, the gift it is for our soul, its beauty, and therefore they choose to implement it on their lives? Education is a difficult enterprise. We should aspire to engrave these values on our children and students' hearts and only then start talking about details and laws. I hope that we succeed on this mission as individuals, as parents, as teachers, as communities, and as a people, because maybe this is one of the secrets of our survival. Amazing, isn't it, that something like the Ten Commandments, fundamentally common sense, and yet it seems like a long way off before a point in time where everyone from all walks of life would adopt them regardless. Thank you all the same to Rabbi Michal Evandovid from Edgware Mazorti Synagogue with our thought for the week. And that's all the Jewish views we have time for. Thanks to our guests, JTA's Ron Campus, Norma Cohen, starring in Two Sisters, Sammy Howard, please do see if you could help her mother, Sippy. And thanks also to all our other contributors and, of course, you at home for listening as well. And we mustn't forget the team, including our producer, Sue Greenberg. You can always listen to the most recent edition of The Jewish Views by visiting our website, jewishviews.co.uk. And you'll also find the Listen Again facility where you can hear all previous episodes as well. The Jewish Views is brought to you in association with The Jewish News and is part recorded at the studios of Jewish Care in London. I'm Phil Dave. Do make sure you join us next time here on The Jewish Views. Goodbye. <laughs>